Welcome to this edition of Forecast Direct. I'm Leo Feller. I'm a senior economist with the UCLA Anderson Forecast. Uh, we're talking today with Professor Vernon Henderson of the London School of Economics. Uh, Professor Henderson's research and teaching focuses on urban economics and economic geography. Uh, Vernon, thanks so much for joining us. I'd like to ask you a few questions about the future of cities and specifically how the experience from this pandemic might change the future of cities. So starting off with the big picture, why do cities exist? What are the trade-offs uh, when we think about living in cities versus living in more remote areas? So, I mean, economists starting about 130 years ago started to write about why we have cities. And the central point is agglomeration benefits that pays in terms of productivity to have people cluster together. Um, they're what we call information spillovers. You learn by observing what other people are doing at close quarters, from talking with them, by meeting them in coffee shops, whatever the case may be, by seeing what gets shipped into their firm and what gets shipped out. Um, we also think about trade in parts um, and reducing the distance on that to make it easier and to do special orders. We think about hiring and how you find people that you want to hire that, um, that are in the local area, again, through contacts. And we think of this as really working face-to-face. Uh, um, there's also public service provision that there are big scale economies and things like providing water mains and sewer mains, and um, those are very expensive to do in rural areas. The disadvantage of cities um, are the high cost of living, right? You cram a bunch of people together. Say if you live in the center of Manhattan, you pay high rents. Why do you pay high rents? Well, because if you don't live in the center of Manhattan, you're going to live somewhere much further away, you're going to have to commute a long distance if you're actually commuting in. And so the people who live in the center of Manhattan play high rents because they don't have to commute. So either you're going to commute a long distance, you're going to pay very high rents, or you're going to do some of both. We also now know that um, bigger cities, uh, this is work from developing countries, uh, present you know, certain quality of life uh, health issues that People tend to have higher blood pressure, higher BMI, greater incidence of diabetes as you kind of go up in terms of urban density, city size. So you have a paper that looks at uh, creative jobs and advertising. Uh, so you're looking at networking on Madison Avenue. Uh, and this paper is from you know, the early 2000s uh, before you have uh, Zoom, but after you have internet, right? After you have emails. Uh, and so, you know, I wanted to, to get a sense with you, you know, why are these advertising firms co-locating so closely to, to each other? Is it just creative jobs that have this benefit of, uh, you know, close co-location? And, and what are the big takeaways from this paper? Uh, and then the reason that I'm setting this up is, you know, I want to think about how does Zoom, how does remote work change this? Right. So in that paper, we advertising agencies, a classic traditional role was um, the agencies were an intermediary between you who had an ad that you wanted to place in some form of media. And the, the agency would do that placement and make do that negotiation. 
And to some extent, that still holds for very big advertising firms that are doing huge media contracts and, and the like. But smaller firms, which is what we focused on in the paper that Leo mentioned, um, really have this more creative function of, of you know, doing ads. So the way we thought of it is you get a request for a proposal from uh, to, to have a do or design an advertising campaign, maybe seven or eight other firms have got that. You're in lower Manhattan, there are a thousand firms roughly. You have a set of contacts and usually neighbors that you interact with that may advise you about this request for proposal because they won't be doing the same request for a proposal. And you try and design this campaign or potential campaign you take a lot of information and trade a lot of things with uh, with your neighbors. What we find in the paper is that people, um, when they're deciding where to locate, they want to locate in a cluster with other advertisers like them. They're willing to pay considerably higher rents in order to do that. And But we infer that these benefits of being close to other firms dissipate really quickly. So, you know, if you're within 250 meters or 500 meters, that's really good. If you're more than 750 meters, uh, these benefits die out. So that was based on face-to-face -face. Um, and thinking about face-to-face. -face, we did start to have Skype in those days, and I will talk about that. So Zoom is very much part of our lives now for the last two years or year and three quarters um, since the pandemic started, but Skype was there before. So does having this, not, not just the availability of the technology, but the adoption of this technology, right? So Zoom is much more pervasive right now, right? It's much easier to get uh, you know, people collaborating on Zoom. It's almost become an institutional staple of the way that we work over this past year and a half, and it doesn't seem like that's gonna be changing anytime soon. So, you know, does this change the nature of agglomeration economies? And by extension, does that change the nature of, of cities? So, I mean, there's a lot of discussion of this, uh, obviously, and given what's happened over the last couple of years, the original research on this and before Zoom um, really was thinking about the internet versus using the internet in general versus face-to-face -face contacts. And the idea in that work was that these were complements so that with the internet, you could have a variety and see a variety of opportunities where you might buy things, people you might interact with and so on. But to really make that work, you needed to meet them face-to-face. So to some extent, we think, well, you know, you can meet them on Zoom, right? And you can, uh, that can substitute for face-to-face. -face. But, you know, you think of the experience that we've had in Zoom. So a lot of what we're doing on Zoom is living off of past contacts. So we have, so I know Leo historically quite well, um, you can do this on Zoom. Uh, that's okay, but that's exploiting a past contact. It, you know, we're thinking, looking to the future for the last year and a half or three quarters, we've been living on those past contacts. You do meet new people on Zoom, but, you know, you meet them briefly, maybe you have a brief conversation, you can't see their body language, you, 
you know, you don't have an extensive interaction. You're not going out to coffee with them. You're not having a meal with them. You're not meeting in another room. You're meeting on Zoom where it's sort of one person talks and then people occasionally jump in and stuff, but you're not meeting in a room where there's a, a freer sense of, of discourse. So um, I, you know, there's certainly Zoom's gonna be part of our lives. I, I'm a researcher. Um, I, work on big research teams that are around the world. So for example, right now we have a project that's based in Tanzania and Africa. And um, the principals are at the London School of Economics, but we meet once a week on Zoom because I'm actually in the US right now. Another principal is in Switzerland and people are still coming into the office much less frequently. And then we have employees in, in Tanzania, full-time employees and part-time employees. You know, if we could still travel, do face-to-face -face and go to Tanzania, it would make things easier. But these are contacts that we've known for a long time. That's why we can do this project. If we were starting from scratch and trying to do a project in Tanzania, working with Tanzania, it couldn't happen. It literally couldn't happen. We would have to have gone down there, spent time in the field, met with those people, gotten to know them, established a trust relationship. That's all face-to-face. -face. So um, yeah, Zoom is going to make our lives easier in some ways and uh, have less travel, less commuting, but the face-to-face -face part is not going to go away. Yeah, and that seems especially relevant right now when we think about as this pandemic ages, right? And as now we've been here a year and a half, you start having a lot of turnover at firms. You start having a lot of new employees coming in and who have never had the face-to-face -face contact. So they can't rely on that historical interaction and the historical right. relationships to be able to make their, uh, their Zoom interactions more productive. So, you know, when we think about the, the impact that this is gonna have on, on cities in the US especially, right? Do you see cities in the US you know, perhaps having slower growth uh, if people aren't coming in as often or if people are coming in only to establish those initial relationships, you know, and then they're working from home part-time, working from, you know, cities, uh, from offices, the other, the other uh, remainder of the time. Does this change what cities have to offer? Right, so it's a bunch of different kind of economic activities, right? And we're really talking about activities that are, let's call them business educational services where there isn't a physical product or it isn't a personal service. So we know manufacturing can't be done on Zoom. You can't get your hair cut on Zoom. Uh, you can't eat a meal uh, from a restaurant on Zoom. Uh, so there's, we're talking about a, a particular set of activities. Those activities, and, and that's why Leo raised advertising, disproportionately occur in big cities, in, in the biggest cities and in the downtown areas. So, you know, we think people have discovered that, you know, if you don't commute, you save a lot of time. Um, and if you can do a lot of your work remotely on computer, and, uh, and then interact on Zoom that uh, you save a lot of time by commuting. So we're kind of seem to be moving in general to a world for these particular time types of economic activity where you don't have to go in five days a week. You don't have to be there every day. You can go in twice a week, three times a week. And the rest of the time you can, uh, you can work at home. 
That means for businesses that their use of office space potentially is going to change. So, you know, you see um, a, a couple of examples. The uh, United Nations uh, is, is um, talking about shutting down a bunch of office space so that and having employees work remotely and maybe come in to meet once a month, once every six months, and that'll save them an office space. If fewer people are coming in every day to the downtown, there's going to be less demand for the services um, that those people would use, like have, where you have lunch or where maybe you get your hair cut or whatever you did when you were downtown that uh, now you, uh, you might do somewhere else uh, that's not downtown. So, I mean, I don't think we're, um, this is probably not a, a, a a time in many big cities where you want to be building office space. We're going to have a release of office space uh, uh, for an increase in, uh, in essence, in vacancy, and then a, maybe a reconfiguration of how that space is used. Um, I, I don't know whether that's permanent. Uh, so the UN again, are they going to discover in two years from now, you got all these employees, they're all over the place. And, um, you know, we're not meeting enough, we're not seeing each other enough, we're kind of stagnant. Um, I noticed there was an article on uh, Price Waterhouse today talking, asking where they are going to ask their employees to commit to whether they want to work remotely, in essence, forever, or whether they still want to keep coming into the office. You know, in a couple of years from now, will they turn around and say to these people who chose to work forever remotely, well, this isn't really working out. You know, we've kind of lost contact with you. We don't really know the people in our office. Um, you know, it's hard to launch new ventures with you, you know, that kind of thing. So it, it seems that there's some something to play with here where, where we can reduce our days that we commute in. But for most activities to work remotely all the time is, uh, I, I think, is going to be problematic. And then I actually, you know, I'd like to take this also on the social dimension, which is when we think about big cities, we also think about them providing things like develop, helping uh, with mentorship, helping people develop networks, having helping people meet their future spouses, right? Yes. And so if you're not going into the office, if, you know, if you're a young analyst at PricewaterhouseCoopers and you are, you know, remote all the time, uh, how do you develop this professional network? How do you, you know, perhaps meet people who are going to be, you know, your dates and your partners later on in life? How do you develop these, these friendships? Um, it seems incredibly hard to do that when, you know, everyone is uh, looking at a screen and isolated uh, in, you know, in their homes or in suburbs. No, I, I agree. I mean, I have uh, somebody I know who's, um, she's employed at Berkeley in a, in a research institution and does scientific writing. And she's being remote now for the last year and a half. She lives on her uh, own in a, uh, in a in apartment in Berkeley, and you know, has been kind of shut down for most of the last year and a half. You know, uh, friends that she had made, a number of them actually left Berkeley um, maybe because of the pandemic and moved to other places and. It's hard to meet new people. Uh, it's hard to interact in your office uh, because it's all on Zoom and um, it really narrows your life to some degree. 
I mean, on the other side, you know, I'm watching other people who are, say, couples with kids and, and uh, commuting is very costly for them. And if they're able to, you know, stay home a couple of days a week and work at home, that's really convenient for their lives. So perhaps this is something that, you know, we'll have different stages, right? So during someone's early life stages, they're going into the office four or five days a week, they're developing that network, right? Their bosses and their mentors are coming in less frequently and interacting with them on Zoom. And you have this, you know, it's hybrid in two senses, you know, of the word, right? It's hybrid in the sense that people are staying at home and working sometimes, going into the office and working sometimes. But it's also, you know, during your early career, you're coming in much more frequently. And perhaps later in your career, as you get, as you have kids, uh, as you're managing, you know, in your case, teams in much more disparate areas, right? It makes more sense to be on Zoom and be able to jump into meetings, you know, in different locations, which you wouldn't be able to do as much, uh, you know, in, in a, a non-Zoom world. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I agree with that. I, I that's, a, in fact, an interesting point about career stage and, uh, you know, how that works out. I don't know in this, you know, in the more... 50 years ago, people chose a career and they stayed in it their entire working life. Now people switch careers a lot. They switch jobs a lot. Uh, there's more mobility across careers and across job places. Um, will that be harder with Zoom? I suspect it is. Um, yeah. so it could be in a particular job that when, when you start that job, you go in quite a bit. You try to meet the people, even the ones that are working mostly remotely, you try and establish contacts, you get a re more refined set of tasks assigned to you or choose to take on a more refined set of tasks. And then, as you said, you can do many of those remotely. So uh, again, it's, it, it's, a, it's not gonna eliminate the face-to-face, -face, the need to go to the office, but it's gonna eliminate your need to commute, how far and how often you have to commute. And that can be really critical. So do you, think this, do you think this helps equalize where a lot of, let's say, creative production takes place? So, you know, an example is that during the pandemic, we saw smaller cities, uh, you know, Boise, Nashville, Fresno, Sacramento, right, second and third tier cities actually gain a lot of population. We saw their home prices go up. So this is a signal that people believe that these cities are going to be doing well, not just now, but, you know, if they're willing to bid up housing prices and, you know, take 30-year mortgages and move out to these locations, it's a signal that they envision these places doing well in the long term. What's, what's your view on whether this shift to, you know, away from, let's say, San Jose and San Francisco towards uh, second-tier cities, um, whether or not that's sustainable? Yeah, well, I'll give um, my reaction by, by giving an example. So um, I've owned a house in, in Providence, Rhode Island for many years. And uh, we actually sold the house this spring because the market was so hot. And we were told that the person who was going to buy our house was somebody who sold a property in New York City, for example, in particular, got a huge amount of cash, came to Providence with all that cash and just pays cash for a house because Providence housing is cheaper, obviously, than Manhattan housing or New York housing more generally. And that is basically kind of what happened. And the idea was that people, you know, with the reduced need to be in Manhattan or to be in the New York area every day could move further away uh, from New York 
maybe be near families, maybe be in just an environment that they thought was better for their kids, better schools, uh, less, um, you know, less of the grime and crime of some, some parts of big cities. And, you know, you actually talk to people who are doing that. Again, the UN example of UN employees thinking, well, uh, and I have examples of this wanting to, to move away from the New York area uh, in order to be closer to families, in order to have cheaper housing and bigger housing. I mean, one of the things with Zoom and working at home is that people decide they need more space, right? Because they want to have a more dedicated office space, a space where they can talk that's not in their living room where other family or household members might be coming through, so they want more space. So I, I do think there's going to be this rearrangement of space to some degree in the, act, in the activities where this is relevant. Um, is it, does that make Providence more creative? I'm not sure it does. Creativity is somehow still centered in New York. You have the people there. You have the people commuting in there now, not every day, but maybe once a week or getting on the train and going down. And uh, the creativity is still centered in, in New York. I guess that's the way I would think of it. Excellent. So we can think about still kind of the, we, we call them productive amenities, right? The productive amenity is in New York. The consumption amenity is in Providence, Rhode Island, where you get to have a bigger house, you get to have more yard space, better schools, perhaps for, for your children. Uh, but this might also suggest you know, if where you're getting your haircut, where you're going out to restaurants is now in Providence, Rhode Island versus Manhattan. Yes. That also means a shift of, you know, demand for these secondary support services, uh, you know, more in these second tier cities. You no, know, no, absolutely. So, you know, if you look and if you walk through, I just, in fact, did this in the, in the last week, walked through downtown LA, downtown Oakland, so many places, service places are boarded up because there's just not a demand for what they normally would offer. Some of them are reopening, but business is really slow because there's still not that many people coming in. So you do think of those services now shifting out to wherever these folks are living. Um, that's, you know, that's really important. And I would emphasize that I, I think there is a life cycle part of this so that if you're young and you're, um, you don't have kids and, and um, you know, moving to Providence to, to have those amenities is not so valuable. You do value what's in a big city. If you're older and your kids have grown up and left home, you like to go to the theater in New York. I mean, I like to go to the theater in London one of the primary reasons I moved to London is because London's got a lot of great stuff uh, compared to Providence, Rhode Island, as, as which you can appreciate once your, your kids are left home because you can consume it more easily. Yeah, so I, I think I wanna bring in one final data point here that, that I think is relevant and interesting. So we've been talking about a labor shortage uh, you know, in the US and how hard it is to find workers for service jobs. One of the things that we haven't looked at is the disaggregation of where it's hard to find workers, right? And so, you know, to your point, if people are moving out of Manhattan into Providence, Rhode Island, right, there needs to be this, this follow-on step of being able to get more service workers in Providence, Rhode Island. And now there's, you know, a glut of service workers in downtown Manhattan. 
And that's the reallocation that we think is very difficult that will still take a lot of time, right? Overall across the country, the leisure and hospitality sector might have this surplus of workers, but that surplus is existing in Manhattan where you know it's not existing in Providence. No, that's a good point. Um, uh, you know, we think of the shortage of workers. I mean, one way to think of it is that it's almost what we call in the economics of regime switch. The people in the US work enormously long hours uh, compared to say Europe. And uh, suddenly you have a pandemic, you're stuck at home, you um, start to develop other activities. Maybe you start to appreciate the leisure time that you have in the pandemic that at, at least at certain points in the pandemic, and maybe you decide, you know, I was crazy to be doing these jobs. And the, the, you know, the interesting thing is, it seems that, you know, everywhere you look, there's this problem of getting people to come back to work. And even once the unemployment benefits, extended benefits ran out, there was still a very slow return to the workforce amongst a segment of people. And it's not clear where that's going to go. Um, maybe it'll go back and we'll all be back in the, in the rat race again and running in the mill um, compared to European countries and other parts of the world, but uh, I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, but the, the point you make about reallocation is, uh, yes, I think that's, that's really right. You've got these service workers and service firms in downtown Manhattan, their businesses dropped. Um, there's a demand for those services now in Providence and, you know, these medium-sized cities or outlying cities that uh, uh, that people um, seem to be moving to, to some degree. Perfect, Vernon, thank you so much. This was really insightful. Uh, I'm glad we were able to catch up and have this conversation. Yeah, that's great, Leo. Good talking. Thanks, Thanks for all this. Take care. Thanks for joining us.